recording. Everything's good to go. All right. Famous last words. All right, so let's look at First Chronicles chapter 1. We're just going to, I thought it would be nice to just read the first nine chapters out loud. No, I'm only kidding. No, <laughs> right? Not too many devotionals written on these chapters. But if you didn't grab one of these, um, this on some of the tables. It's just a little outline of First Chronicles. We're probably going to get, might be able to do this one in two weeks. Um, so again, you see the vital statistics, 29 chapters, 942 verses, 20,365 words. The timeline of First Chronicles really covers, if you think about it, all the way back to what we would say, what Usher says is 4004 BC. Why? Because it starts with Adam, right? It goes all the way back to the beginning, beginning with Adam. And uh, it brings us up through 1015 BC, which is the death of David. So we're going from Adam to David. And uh, First and Second Chronicles, a chronicle is like a record of history. So First and Second Chronicles are a view of history. And what you want to get about this is that First and Second Chronicles are really a divine view of history. It's like God's commentary on history. It's like God is looking at Israel's history and giving you His vantage point, His perspective, his record. So, first, and, as it, and it says this, I think, on your sheet. I think it says this. Right. First and second chronicles are commentaries on the books of the kings. So, first chronicles is a commentary on first and second Samuel. Second chronicles is a commentary on first and second kings. So, it's the same time period, but you get a very different perspective. You'll see a very spiritual perspective, where Kings is a very historical perspective. Um, I didn't put this on the notes, but you could note this for yourself. The author, many people presume the author to be Ezra. Now, I wouldn't die on that hill. There really is not a lot of evidence, if any, in the book that it's Ezra. Some but some people think because Ezra, that priest who went up after the exile, kept all the records and kept all the genealogies and, and kind of kept all those names after the exile, many think that Ezra might have either compiled or wrote the book of Chronicles. So, but I didn't put that in the notes because that's like a, a presumption. It's not really, there's not evidence in the book for it. And again, because we're dealing with the kings, Jesus Christ is pictured as our king. Now, the breakdown is easy, and it's on your list. It's an easy breakdown. Chapters 1 to 9, the lineage of David from Adam, because you know what God is trying to show? God is trying to show that the Messiah is king, and the Messiah that's going to come, the messianic line, is the kingly line. So we get the lineage of David, and then we get the life of David, which is really that commentary on 2 Samuel. The last half of the book is that commentary on 2 Samuel, which is about David. So let's jump in now to our first nine chapters. So let's talk about some Bible pictures and some important truths from 1 Chronicles. And uh, chapters 1 to 9, um, again, we'll talk about it, is really just all that, I'm just going to say lineage because I always mess up how to spell genealogy, I really do, uh, that lineage of David. And I want to point some things out to you. Uh, if you look at verses 1 to 5, we're not going to read them by all means, but verses 1 to 5 deal with the sons of Japheth, right? Um, verses, or I should say, I'm sorry, verse 5 brings us to the, I'm sorry, verse 5 gives us the, the, the sons of Japheth. 
And uh, I want you to notice this, even though it's boring and bland, and I know some of you are happy when you get to this in your Bible reading because you go, whoop, nine chapters done, which you shouldn't do, but that's how some people get those nine chapters in. But if you pay special attention, God will, (laughs) don't out yourself, God will give you some nuggets if you pay special attention. Please notice, please, verse number one. Adam, Sheth, or Seth, Enosh. Please notice the Holy Spirit does not mention Cain in Adam's line. Now, he doesn't mention Abel because Abel dies. We don't know about Abel's seed. Abel is killed. So, of course, I'm not going to put Abel in the genealogy. He had no kids to account from in, in that lineage. But he doesn't mention Cain. We know Cain got married. We know Cain had children. But Cain's not in there. That's an interesting little nugget. Let's talk about why. Let's go to 1 John chapter 3. Let's talk about why. Why is Cain not mentioned in Adam's line? Again, if you're zipping through it, but if you slow down one day and get yourself a cup of coffee and sit there and say, Lord, show me something, you might, I'm just going to pull out a few little things to tickle your fancy about Chronicles. It's not all dry. Uh, 1 John chapter 3. Let's see some things about Cain. Uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 10. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. Please notice the context is children of God, children of the devil. Verse 11. For this is the message that she heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, very interesting phrase, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil, and his brother's righteous. Now spiritually, we could just stop right there and say, hey, Cain isn't of God, Cain is, a, is of the wicked one, because he did something bad, and we can make it all spiritual, but it's something about that Chronicles, man. Why is his name not in Adam's genealogy? I, I, I think we could speculate safely that it's more than just spiritual. It seems to really suggest that Cain was not a child of Adam. Uh, Go to John chapter 8. Look at this, John chapter 8. And again, I wouldn't die on this hill. If somebody wanted to fight me on this, I'd shake hands and go for a burger. But I could go for a burger right now, too. But, you know, I could always go for a burger. But, uh, and some of you are right now as well. I shouldn't have opened my mouth. There I go again. John 8, 44. Let's look at this. John 8, 44. Can you tell I don't eat dinner before this? All right, so John. John 8.44. Look at John 8.44. Now watch this now. Just think for a second. It'll do you some good. Year of your father the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. Now can I ask you a question? When did Satan kill anybody in Genesis? At least in the beginning parts there. I don't see any... I don't see Lucifer showing up and killing Abel or killing a person... What could that mean? Well, look at John chapter 5. Look at verse 17. Look at 517. Look at this parallel here. Jesus Christ has just done something, right? He's just healed a man that was lame. He healed that impotent man who couldn't walk. And they're freaking about about this work that he did. And Jesus says in John 517, But Jesus answered them, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. You know what Jesus is saying there? The son's work is counted for the father's work. Hey, I'm doing this, 
and God's doing this. But I thought Jesus was doing it. Yeah, but he's saying my father's doing it. So when the Bible says, you're, you're of your father the devil, and the lust of your father you will do, he was a murderer from the beginning. You know who was doing his work in the beginning? His son. Cain seems to be the son of the devil and a union with Eve that might have taken place in that garden that I'm not going to go into, but something went on in that garden. It was more than just eating a grape, right? Something went on. And if you study it out and run it through, you could see it. But there's a lot of evidence there who was the murderer from the beginning? Cain was the murderer from the beginning. But the Bible says look, the devil was a murderer from the beginning. Why? Because the son's work, he's working in his father's stead. He's doing his father's work, and it counts. Jesus said, when I do this work in my father's stead, it counts as if my father was doing it. Guess what? The murderer from the beginning was Cain. He was doing his father's work. I don't know, that's just a little nugget. Let's go back to First John, First Chronicles. Let's go back to some... Uh, some of you just like scratching your heads. It's okay. Think about it. First uh, Chronicles 1. Let's look at another one here. Let's look at verse 3. Um, good old Enoch, spelled Enoch there, right? Notice, please, if you count them up, he is the seventh from Adam. Like it says in Jude, Enoch, the seventh from Adam. Seven's an interesting number. Seven is the number of completion. You know who Enoch represents? Us, the church. And when this church age is over, complete, number seven, guess what? We're getting caught out of here, just like Enoch. God's got some little nuggets in there if you'll slow down and think about them. How about verse number four? Verse number four is Noah. You know what Noah is? Noah is the tenth from Adam. You know what the number 10 is? It's the Gentile number. You know what Noah is? Noah gives us all the Gentiles. Shem, Ham, and Japheth all come back from Noah. He's the 10th from Adam. That's a little little tidbit for you. Look at verse number 8. Verse number 8, we get the sons of Ham. One of Noah's sons. He was a bad boy. Uh, And if you look at verse number 10, you see one of his descendants. and says, And Cush begat Nimrod. Ooh, Nimrod is, Nimrod is, I don't know why I want to write this. I just feel like I need to write something, but I'm not going to. Nimrod is the 13th generation from Adam. 13 is a number of rebellion. And Nimrod was a rebel. Nimrod's important because you know who Nimrod typifies? He's a great type of antichrist who is the rebel of rebels. In fact, if you want to note this verse, in Genesis chapter 10, verse 10, 10, 10, Gentile number, in Genesis 10, 10, it's Nimrod, who, the hunter, who forms the first Gentile kingdom on earth. Babel. Nimrod does it in Genesis 10, 10. And in Micah 5, 6, the land of Nimrod is called Assyria. That's where the Assyrian comes from, who the Bible calls the Antichrist. One of his titles is the Assyrian, and Assyria is called the land of Nimrod. So it's interesting that Nimrod is the 13th generation from Adam, 13 being the number of rebellion, and that's where we see a great rebel in God's uh, Bible. All right, verse 17, the sons of Shem. What did God tell Noah? Blessed be the Lord God of Shem. Right? Blessed be the Lord God of Shem. So you see who one of Shem's descendants are? Verse 27. Abram, the same, is Abraham. He's a descendant of Shem. He was a Shemite. You read about anti-Shemitism, right? Anti-Semitism on the rise. What is it? People against 
those descendants of Abraham that comes from Shem, who is a blessed descendant of Shem. Where does he show up? Verse 27. What is 27? 999. The number of fruitfulness. Abraham was going to bless the whole earth. He was going to be fruitful. Right? A blessed descendant. Go to chapter 2. I'm, just, I'm just, just picking out some things. I have other stuff written here, but I guess just some other things. You could do your own study. How about Genesis? Uh, Genesis, sorry. First Chronicles. First Chronicles. How about First Chronicles 2.1? He gets in First Chronicles 2.1, we get the sons of Israel. Please notice that he says, these are the sons of Israel. Look at 134. Look at 134. See that? Abraham begat Isaac, the sons of Isaac, Esau, and Israel. Please notice that God does not use the name Jacob in this list. Right? Jacob is the name of a man who was flawed and weak and limped. Right? Israel is the name that God gave him, means a prince. Remember what we said Chronicles is? It's God's commentary on history. It's the divine view of history. So when God is recounting these people, He doesn't deal with the flawed man of the earth. He talks about the one that has power with God, the prince, the name that God gave Israel, the name that God gave Jacob. That's God's name. And God's given us that divine view, and God is focusing on, in Chronicles, the nation that would come from Israel, not the man. The focus on the nation, God's nation, that was going to come through Israel. We'll see some more of these little tidbits. All right, then uh, chapter 3, if you're noting things in your Bible of Chronicles, are the sons of David. And then chapters 4 through 9, look at that, how fast I did those five chapters. Chapters 4 through 9 are the, are the genealogy of the 12 tribes. So look at that, we covered nine chapters in, in like five minutes. Look at that, it's the best I've done all Bible study. But I do want to leave you with, before I move off chapters one to nine, what are some things we could take away from this? Like what can we learn from these nine chapters? All right, let's start first with doctrine. What are some like doctrinal things that we could take away from these genealogies? Well, First Chronicles... First Chronicles ends with what? The temple. The preparation to build the temple, right? The temple is something for the millennium, right? So the book ends with the temple, and it ends with getting us ready for the millennium, but it starts with all these names. It starts with all these genealogies. Why? Well, just slow down and think, think with me for a second. What's happened now? What's happened for the last... 2,000 years almost, right? The Jews get scattered and lose track of their tribes. They lose track. You know what's really important about their knowing their tribes? They need to know who the priestly tribe is to be able to go in here, to do those sacrifices, to shed that red heifer's blood, to atone for the death of their Messiah and get God's favor and blessing. They need to know who that priest is. So... Daniel chapter 12 and in in verses 4 and 9 says, Hey, Daniel, I want you to seal some things up. There's going to be some things sealed until the time of the end. And I think one of those things that are going to get unsealed near the end is, who are all these tribes? Who are all these lineages? Who are all these people? And, and when you get to here, Israel is going to have to rediscover the priestly tribe in order to do that sacrifice. 
And during the Great Tribulation, it looks like the Jews are going to be able to trace their genealogy and start to find out who that tribe is because the Jews need that priestly tribe to offer that sacrifice for their nation. Does that make sense? Yes. Now we'll see where this is pictured. Go to Ezra chapter 2. This is pictured in Ezra because in Ezra, they've been in captivity dispersed among Gentiles, they come back to the land and they want to try to restore themselves, right? Which is a forerunner of what's going to happen at the end of the church age. The Jews, and they've been coming back to the land for the last hundred, uh, well, yeah, 70 year, years or so, right? And they've been coming back to the land really since 1918, that Balfour Declaration. They began to come back. They came back in force between 48 and 67. They've really been coming back to the land. And that's a picture of what happened in the past. It's what's happening now for the future. You know what's going to happen? They need to find out who those tribes are so they could offer that sacrifice so they could atone for the sins of killing their Messiah. Now, Ezra is a picture of that because he's a priest that goes back to the land after a captivity among the Gentiles, they go back up, and what do they do? Ezra's full of genealogies. It's full of lists and names and who's getting put out of the priesthood. Look at Ezra chapter 2, verse 61. Ezra 2, 61. I can't wait to get to Ezra. Be here before you know it. Uh, Ezra 2, uh, Ezra 2, look down by verse 61. I've got to get there with you because I flipped a bunch of pages that brought me to Ezekiel. Ezra 2, 61. Now, there's a whole list of names in here, right? And it says in 261, And the children of the priests, the children of Habai, uh, the children of Koz, the children of Barzillai, which took a wife of the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, uh-oh, a little intermingling going on there, and was called after their name, uh-oh, these sought their register, record, right? Among those that were reckoned by genealogy, but they were not found. They couldn't trace their lineage back. Therefore were they as polluted, put from the priesthood. And the Tershatha, that was like the governor, said unto them that they should not eat of the most holy things till there stood up a priest with Urim and with Thummim. They said, we can't really get this thing going. We're back here in the land. We're trying to rebuild some things. But we really can't get back to the spiritual sacrifices that God ordained for our nation until we have the priest that can help us do those sacrifices. We need to find the priest. And what are they searching? They're searching genealogies. They're searching names. To restore the nation, they needed the priest then, and they need the priests again. So what do we see? In a book that ends with the millennium, or picture of the millennium, it starts with genealogies. Because they got to find those tribes, they got to find that priest, and that's going to get them to a place where they could finish here. It's a picture. It's a picture. All right. Let's get into some practical things. That, that's a little doctrine and I, I see that went over like a lead balloon. But uh, that, let's get into some practical truths that we could take away from this. Number one I see from this. Go to Mark chapter 10. New Testament, Mark chapter 10. You know what a great practical truth is of God putting all these genealogies in the Bible? I'll give you one big takeaway of this. Number one, the God of the Bible cares about individuals. Isn't that a blessing? You don't care. Right? You and I would just as soon skip over these people so we can get our nine or ten chapters in, right? You don't care about, uh, I was writing some of these names down, Shaharaim or Tekoa. These people mean nothing to you. Their name's on a page. You're like, Lord, why'd you put this in your Bible? But you know what God stuck that in there to remind you? I care about individuals. You and I don't. 
we'll use individuals. Like, we'll flip over these things. I mean, I do it too. You read it, or you, you speed read it. Like, oh, okay, you know, you just kind of go fast. But God says, don't go so fast. All those people were people that got married, had kids, suffered loss, dealt with heartache. God says, I recorded all those names because I care about individuals. And here's a great picture in Mark 10, verse 46. And Jesus is walking around and it says, And they came to Jericho, and as he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great number of people, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the highway side begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And many charged him that he should hold his peace. But he cried the more a great deal. Thou son of David, have mercy on me. And these next four words to me are amazing. And Jesus stood still. Here is Jesus Christ, and everybody's trying to pick his brain, get some healing, just get close to him. I mean, he's the, he's the grand poobah right now, and the press is all around him. He's got his posse following him, and this reject, this blind beggar on the side of the road is calling out, and they're telling him to shut up. They're like, knock it off, knock it off, Jesus is coming. And once he hears it's Jesus coming, he starts crying out even more. You know what Jesus Christ does? The God who hung the stars also, he stops for one blind beggar or a lady by a well, or just, you know, a guy by a pool, right? You read through the Gospels. How many times is Jesus always trying to get somewhere and stopping for somebody else? (laughs) He's trying to get somewhere through a crowd, and a lady's dealing with an issue of blood, and he stops for her. I mean, it looks like never Jesus never got where he was trying to go. (laughs) You know why? Because Jesus Christ, the God of this Bible, cared about individuals. He stopped for individuals. That's a great blessing. I see that in all these names, that he's, God meticulously recorded, the Holy Spirit of God recorded the names of people that mean nothing to the world and probably mean nothing to most of us, but they meant something to God. And you might feel like you mean nothing to the world, and sometimes you feel like you mean nothing to God, but let those dry nine chapters remind you that God knows every hair of your head is even numbered, even the ones you don't have on your head anymore, right? Amen? That's, that's a great truth. That What a comfort to know the God of the Bible <laughs> cares about little old you. Amen. He cares about little old you. Right? And He'll stand still for you. That's amazing. Here's a second big takeaway I like from the book of 1 Chronicles. These genealogies remind you that life isn't always exciting. Sometimes it's just plain boring. Tomorrow morning, alarm goes off, not exciting. Got to get up, go to work, do what I got to do to take care of my family. It's not always exciting, right, guys? Not always exciting. Running those routes, not always exciting, right? You just want to get them done, right? Not always exciting. You know, the Christian life is not always exciting. You get up tomorrow morning, you know what you're supposed to do? Read your Bible and pray. And guess what on Saturday? You know what you're supposed to do on Saturday? Get up, read your Bible, and pray. And then Sunday, I know you're all spiritual, you're going to get up a little earlier. You're going to read your Bible and pray, and then you're going to come to church. And then on Monday, you know what you got to do on Monday? you got to read your Bible and pray. Amen. Do I need to keep going? <laughs> you know what? It's not always raising the dead and parting the Red Sea. Life isn't like that. And the Bible is like life. Some of it's a little dry. Lists of names and dimensions of tashits and loops. You ever read some of those chapters in Exodus? Right? I mean, once you hit 25, it's like, 
you know, 32 gives you a little, oh, 32, this is good, kill him. Yeah, it's exciting. And then, man, 35, you're like, you're right back to loops and tashes and this, this. And you know why? Because God's trying to show you on the one hand, life is it's not all, it's not, you know, we got a generation of people that have not stimulated and titillated and excited by something that I'm not going to do it because it's not, ready, <clears throat> fun. But life isn't always fun. If life is always fun, then you're always on a high. You never appreciate the highs because you're always on a high. And that's what's happening with, I'm not going to get into technology, but you know, I'm going to get into it. But technology has got us so overstimulated that nobody knows how to rest or think. Or You take a kid and you stick him in front of an iPad and you just let him, ah, you know, get colors and lights and sounds and it's like the dopamine's firing in their brain and then you sit down and say, honey, now I want to tell you a Bible story. Your face doesn't light up like that. You don't make sounds like that. You're not color and flash like that. You don't drop a thousand coins when they tap your face like that. And the devil has been very wise. He's getting people so, and Bible is, I got to stand up here for 45 minutes to an hour-ish, right, and kind of like try to read to you and talk to you about a book. When all week long you've been like push notifications and this and that and you know, HBO Max and you know, all this stuff that's going on and I'm trying to compete with that. right? Or preachers are trying to compete with that. You think it's by accident? Right. Oh, it's by design. Amen, amen. It's all that engineering to get you away from the preaching of God's Word. But the Bible purposely puts in some dry stuff to just remind all of us, you know what guys? Sometimes you just got a one foot in front of the other, no points for style. Amen. And just keep on keeping on. And uh, remember that. And here's the last big takeaway. That's a good truth to remember because uh, if you're always thinking, you know, that's why somebody comes, somebody, I'll, I'll, I'll get back to this. Give me one second. But, you know, people come to church and they get saved. And like, oh, I got something here. And oh, I got something there. And oh, I learned this. You know what happens after a while? Sometimes it's not always a, a rocket launch goes off at, at church, you know? It's like, I did it, you know, it was good, it was a blessing, and there's highs and lows, but some people say, that's it, I'm, oh, I just didn't get anything out of that one. I just didn't get anything from church. I just don't, you know, it's really not doing anything for me anymore. What are you talking about? You go to the gym, right? Some days you go to the gym at 5 a.m., right? right? I'm driving, I'm going to get there, I'm going to get my reps in, you know, I got to lift, I got to run. It's not exciting, Right? There's a diligence and a, and a continuation. The Bible says, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. God's looking for some people to just be able to go one foot in front of the other, no points for style. That goes with everything in the Christian life and even things in your own life. What if you go to work one day, like, wow, I got a raise, and wow, I made the sale, and wow, and the next day it's like, you filed papers. You're supposed to, I'm quitting, man, because I can't take that. Really? All right, well, good luck, you know. Eventually get your unemployment. But life is like that. The Bible is like that. I'll move ahead. All right, third big takeaway. All these names. You know the big takeaway I learned also? The Lord cares about anyone who's connected to his son. All these names are in the lineage of David. And Jesus Christ is called the son of David. So even though these names might mean nothing to you, and you might say, God, what is the point of putting like Kaz and Duz and, you know, like I said, Shaharim. I mean, let's just look at some of these. Let me just pull out some of these names here, right? Uh, uh, pages and pages of names. Um, of course, I left my bookmark in there, but I'm choosing to flip through all the pages myself. All right. Um, there it is. Um, 
Michelle, Michelle Mahaya, you know, uh, Showball sounds like a game, uh, Radaya, Ozem, Jeramamil uh, sounds like Jeramamo, Shamiyai. I mean, these names don't mean anything to you, also for the reason, but they mean something to God because they're connected to His Son. Hey, if you're connected to God's Son, you're important to God. The world may not care about Pat or Phil or Danielle or Ray, but guess what? If you're connected to Jesus Christ, guess what? Your name is important to God. In fact, your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Your name is written down in glory. That's how important your name is to God. He says, you're connected to my son. I'll put it down in my book. These guys are connected to his son. He puts them down in his book. That's a good truth to remember about yourself. So that's chapters 1 to 9, some thoughts about chapters 1 to 9. Let's go back to 1 Chronicles and jump to chapter 10. Um, Chapter 10. And chapters 10 through, through, uh, through 29 are about the life of David. Uh, it's like a running commentary on 2 Samuel. And you really see the heart and personality of Christ in here. I want you to notice something. In chapters 10 to 29, there is something missing in the life of David that many of us think about often when we think about David. In God's, remember this, I said it at the beginning, Chronicles is the divine view of history. It's God's perspective on history. And in the divine view of David's life, the Lord does not mention David's sin with Bathsheba. Not there. You say, why? Because 1 Chronicles highlights the differences in the doctrine of standing and state. And if you're a Christian here today or watching at home, hey, all right, you need to understand the difference between standing and state. You have a standing and you have a state. If you mix those two together, you're going to think you're the worst Christian in the world. If you separate those, you're going to understand why you have your good days and your bad days and you're still saved. Let's talk about it, all right? Let's talk about some differences here. Standing is a heavenly position. State is an earthly condition. That's one big takeaway. I'm sorry if you're at home and you can't see this well, but uh, your standing never changes. Your earthly state always changes. Tomorrow you might lead a thousand souls to Christ, and then Saturday you might act like the devil himself. Right? Your standing is based on God's work through Christ. Your state is based on your work as a Christian. Your standing is about is what gives you really your salvation because it's by grace through faith. Your state is what gives you your rewards. Your standing is already perfect. Nothing to add to it, nothing to take away. Your state is being perfected. The key phrase of standing is, you in Christ. 
Your standing is in Christ. God sees you in Christ in terms of your standing. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. This is heavenly. This is about your salvation. This is based on God's work. This never changes. I am a Mashanya by birth. I can act like an idiot tomorrow and dishonor that name, but I'm a Mashanya by birth. You're a believer in Jesus Christ and a son of God by birth. You might act like a good son today and a bad son tomorrow, but by being born again, you're always a son. That makes sense. You got to get that. You got to get standing in state like you got to get a hole, not a hole in your head, like something important. I couldn't find a good thing. You in Christ. The key phrase of state is Christ in you. How much of that life are you conforming to? How much do people see Christ in you? You're in Christ. That's heavenly. When heaven looks around, they see Chris Lisa already. They see Matt already. You're already seated up there in heavenly places in Christ, Ephesians 1. But down here when the world looks at you, Pete, or you, Aaron, do they see any Christ in you? That's your state. Now, how does this tie into the books we're talking about? Because your standing is typified. First Chronicles is about your standing. It's about the heavenly view. It's about, oh, you might not see this, so I'll just say it. David, the saint. That's why it doesn't mention David's dark, dirty sins. Because you know what? As far as God is concerned, when God sees you in Christ, He doesn't see you as a sinner. He sees you as a son. That's your standing as a member of the family. But 2 Samuel, which is the other book about David's life, 2 Samuel is about David the man. And you get the good, the bad, and the ugly. You get you know, great things, and you get stuff about him messing around with Bathsheba and killing Uriah, having him killed. So you got to get that difference. If you don't get this difference, you are going to make a mess of your Christian life. You're going to think you lose your salvation. You wake up tomorrow and you say, oh man, I, I was so mean today. I was so cruel today. I was so bad today. Oh, I must have lost. You didn't lost it. You had a bad state today. Your condition is pretty bad today, but th- there's been no gloss taken off the shine of your title in heaven. Amen. Your name is still there. And the trick, for lack of a better word, of the Christian life is to meditate on this so this conforms to this. The Christian life is not about me just kicking you and the Holy Spirit just kicking you. Yeah, we got to get rebuked. I get that. But really what God would like to do is get you so enwrapped in this and so overwhelmed with this that this would start moving over to this and your standing in state would start to get a little more in harmony so you'd start living down here like God already sees you up there. That's what it's all about. When you read the gospel, you read the letters of Paul, he doesn't say, I went to Corinth and I needed to make sure everybody had short hair and the ladies were not dressing like hoochie mamas. No, he didn't get into that stuff. No, he talks about who they are in Christ. He says, by one spirit, we're all baptized into one body. And he's talking to a church that had the guy who was messing around with his stepmom in it. And he tells them about the body and he tells them about spiritual gifts. Why? Because that's stuff that God has given to you as a gift. Right? He's talking about their position so it might improve their condition. Now, sometimes he got sharp, of course, 
But he's really, the Holy Spirit, if he can grab you right now, he'd say, look at that. Look at who you are in Christ. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ. You get lost in who you are in Christ, and Christ starts getting into a little bit more of you. Now, he lives inside of you, but he wants to inhabit your walk. All right? Now, let's look at chapter 10. Chapter 10, 1 Chronicles 10. 1 Chronicles 10, I'll leave that up there if anybody needs to see it. 1 Chronicles 10 is about the death of Saul. 1 Chronicles 10. All right? Notice, notice verses 13, interesting, and 14 really are God's explanation as to why the Lord killed Saul. So Saul died for his transgression, which he committed against the Lord, even against the word of the Lord, which he kept not, and also for asking counsel of one that had a familiar spirit to inquire of it, and inquired not of the Lord, therefore he slew him and turned the kingdom unto David, the son of Jesse. Can you look at verse 1 also? Do you please notice in verse 1, the Lord skips Saul's entire reign. He starts with his death. God is not interested in the flesh at all. The world right now is wondering and taking bets. France or Argentina? France or Argentina? Is it going to be Messi or is it going to be the other guy? Right? The world is all caught up in that. That's fun. It's fun to watch. I get, you know, I don't watch soccer either. It's a little too boring for me. I need three balls and like a hole in the middle or something like that. Not enough scoring. But it's a cool sport. They're great athletes. I'll watch a little of it. I respect it. I respect it. But you know what? God yawns. God says, oh, what are they talking about? World War? Oh. Super Bowl? United Nations? Marriage acts getting signed. You know what God just says? Oh, those knuckleheads. Right? Rich people. This guy's rich. That guy's rich. All these things that people get so enwrapped with down here. Basketball games and money and success and jobs. You know what God says? What are my children doing? (laughs) Saul had kingdoms. and You know what God said? From the divine view? As far as God is concerned, looking at history, he just said, we're going to step right over Saul and start with the man after my my heart. (laughs) I'm going to start with the spiritual man. I'm going to focus on David. I didn't really care about Saul. Now, you read through 1 Samuel, you get all these details of Saul. God just says, skip. (laughs) God skips right ahead. It's amazing. Chapter 11. Chapter 11. Chapter 11 is about the battle with the Jebusites for Jerusalem. And I'm not going to go too deep here because we go real deep here, but I want to just show you something that this little section here really has some good advice for how to deal with strongholds, satanic strongholds. Now listen, you have sins in your life, you have problems in your life, you deal with them, you make them right. It's when it's been there a long time You know what? That enemy starts to set up shop and it becomes a stronghold. It becomes a fortified base. It becomes a little harder to get victory over because the enemy is entrenched there. And you're going to notice something that this is about on the surface about Jerusalem getting captured for David, but it's really about uh, getting a victory in your life and getting an enemy driven out and a stronghold overturned. Where do I see that? I see it's about Jerusalem. They're fighting about Jerusalem. Jerusalem, city of peace, is a special place. It looks like Jerusalem was where Lucifer had a throne, where Lucifer wants a throne. 
because he knows the Son of God is going to have a throne there. So you see, Jerusalem is important because it has to do with a throne and authority. And these people don't want to give it up like the devil doesn't want to give you up. He wants to run your show. He wants to rule your life. He likes that he has set up camp in your heart. And he's not going to be so quick to relinquish those reins to David. So how do we do this? The devil doesn't want to relinquish your Jerusalem. You know what the devil wants? He wants your heart. He wants your throne. He wants to sit on the throne of your heart. And if he's been there for a while, he's not just going to say, oh, well, I guess you're saved now. I guess i got to go bother somebody else. No, that evil has been with you for maybe 10, 20, 30 years. And guess what? It wants to stay there. And you dabble with things, and guess what? You get habits in your life. Guess what? He says, I'm getting real comfortable in here. He's not just the longer he's there, the longer he's going to want to stay. How do we get him out? How do we get him off the throne and get David in there? Look at verse number two. And moreover, in time past, even when Saul was king, thou wast he that ledest out and broughtest in Israel. And the Lord thy God said unto thee, Thou shalt feed my people Israel, and thou shalt be ruler over my people Israel. God wants David to rule over you. David's a picture of Christ. God wants that man to be ruling over you, the spiritual man. He says, you know what you need to do to rule them, David? You've got to feed them. And if you want to get a victory and get something driven out of your heart, you've got to feed from David. You've got to get David's food. You've got to get this book in your heart and your mind because whatever you feed the most wins. You feed the old nature, and the old nature is going to win. You feed the new nature and starve the old nature, guess what? You'll start to gain some ground. So you've got to feed first. Then look what happens. Verse 4. And David and all Israel went to Jerusalem, which is Jebus, where the Jebusites were, the inhabitants of the land. And the inhabitants of Jebus said to David, <laughs> Thou shalt not come hither. Nevertheless, David took the castle of Zion, which is the city of David. You know what I see there? The enemy's going to resist you. It isn't going to be easy to get rid of a stronghold. You know, something that's been entrenched in your life, whether it's a guilty conscience, whether it's like a certain habit, anger, you know, any of these sins that kind of take root and, and the devil kind of gets a foothold in your life, it's not just going to be like one, two, three, pray with me. You're going to have to work and sweat and put some Bible in there and get some accountability and really wrestle with because that enemy's like, I ain't leaving. <laughs> they show up, they're like, sorry, honey, I'm not leaving. I like it here. This is where we inhabit. But what do you got to do? Verse 6. And David said, Whosoever smiteth the Jebusites first shall be chief and captain. So Joab, the son of Zeruiah, went up first and was chief. Please notice, you've got to go up when God says go. Hey, whoever goes up first is going to be in charge over there. They're going to get the blessing. Hey, Joab went. Don't hesitate to take God's way of escape. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. The problem is, Christians don't take the escape. They're afraid it'll cost them friends, it'll cost them comfort, it'll cost them convenience, but God says, there's the exit door, get out, flee! But we don't flee. You pray for a door to open, God will, God will make a way. He promised. And David says, hey, go up. Joab didn't need to be told twice. He went up. You know what he did? He went on the offensive. Listen, you got a problem, spiritual problem. You know what you can't do? You can't just sit around there and hope time 
and, you know, pixie dust from your Bible is going to magically make it go away. You wouldn't do that with your weight. Somebody's got a weight problem. They're just, I'm just going to keep eating this way and sitting around watching TV. And I just think eventually it's just going to melt off of me. You're an idiot, right? And we would say you're an idiot. We was like, oh, poor sucker. Nothing's ever going to change. What they say insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different results. You know what Job said? Job said, all right, David, you want me to go? I'm going to go. Hey, take the sword and go attack. Do something different. Break the pattern. Disrupt the enemy's plans and break the pattern. Go on the offensive and get some ground for God. That's how you overturn a stronghold, not by just sitting around hoping it's going to change. It's not going to change. You're going to have to do something to change it. Beg God, plead with God, fast if you got to fast. Memorize verses, draw the sword, and attack. That's what Jesus did in his temptation in the wilderness. He had some verses tucked away, and when the enemy came, he shot him with the verse, and shot him with the verse, and shot him with the verse, and drew the sword. He didn't sit there and, I'm just going to sit here, and hopefully the devil will leave me alone. No, he won't. You have to draw the sword. It's your only offensive weapon, Ephesians 6. Your only offensive weapon is the word of God, the sword of the Spirit. Draw the sword and stick that sucker. Whether it's anger, pride, envy, lust, take up verses and nail that sucker to the wall. If you've got to get up and you've got to take your computer and throw it out the window, throw it out the window. You've got to cancel some stations, cancel some stations. It's not just going to change by you sitting there because an object in motion stays in motion unless acted upon by an outside force. So you've got to get God in there to disrupt the pattern. Verse number seven. A little physics for you tonight. Number seven, and David dwelt, ooh, David dwelt in the castle. You got to go up, that's verse six. You got to go on the offensive, verse six. And then you got to let David dwell in the castle. That's like your stronghold, right? You got to get the evil stuff out, but it's not just getting the evil stuff out. You got to get Jesus Christ in, put Jesus Christ on the throne, not just for a week, Let them dwell there. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Don't just get you one verse on your problem. Get you five verses and memorize those suckers. And every day you're saying them to yourself. And when that stuff rises up, you're saying them out loud. Or calling a brother up and say, brother, I'm getting tempted. Help me. Get yourself an accountability partner and say, brother, help me with this. Pray for me and drive that stuff away. And let, that, let the Savior dwell. Get him in on the problem, not just for a day or a week or a month. Or you come to church for six months and when everything's okay, you're out. That stuff's going to come right back. you got to let him dwell there. Verse 8, you know what you need to do? And he built the city round about, even from Milo, round about, and Joab repaired the rest of the city. After you've gone on the, you've been fed, you go on the offensive, David is now sitting on the throne, you know what you need to do? Repair what the enemy's broken. Some things busted, fix them. You know what? Don't give, seal up the walls. You know what they would repair? The breaches. The breaks in the wall where the enemy could make his way back in again. Go check those walls out. Make sure your walls are good and sturdy so nothing good gets out nothing bad gets in. And verse number 9, look what happens when you do that. So David waxed greater and greater for the Lord of hosts within him. When you do these things, you know what will happen? The spiritual man will increase in your life. You'll grow, you'll prosper. 
I was a little preaching, I know, but a little nugget from that. Uh, look at chapters 11 and 12. Here's a heading. 11 and 12, right after this, gets into David's mighty men of valor. 11 and 12 gets into a lot of David's mighty men. And you know what? I'm just going to say this because we touched on this and I think uh, first Sam, or Second Samuel. We need more Christians who go above and beyond. You know, God is recording here. You know, these guys aren't Joe Schmoes. These guys aren't guys that just, you know, occupied a pew. These guys are just not people that came to church. These are people that, like, did something for David. They did something for God. And you know what? I'm going to be honest, starting with myself. We need more Christians who go above and beyond the status quo to, to do something for Jesus Christ. Too many believers, and I don't, I'm not going to preach it to the choir here, but the other ones out there, maybe you at home, I don't know. But too many believers want to do nothing for God and receive all of God's blessings. I don't want to do anything for God. Don't you dare ask me to do one thing more than my bare minimum list. But God, I want you to answer my prayers. I want you to bless me. I want a full reward. In fact, I don't even want to, I want to pretend the judgment seat of Christ doesn't even exist because I'm so afraid of it. You know, that's how most Christians are. But you know, Winnie, we need some Christians who go above the status quo. And the Lord, just as I read these verses, is so convicting. The Lord makes note of soldiers of the cross who are willing to fight for their king willing to be a little bit inconvenienced, willing to bust through enemy lines, willing to stand. We need more Christians like that. Chapter 13. Chapter 13 is the death of Uzzah. You know what this teaches us? Good intentions don't give you the right to violate biblical principles. Good intentions don't give you the right to violate biblical principles. They're taking the Ark of God back, um, back to Jerusalem, which was a good thing. But they, were, they had a good intention, but they were violating Bible principles. And your good intentions, no matter how noble they may seem, don't give you an excuse to violate what the Bible says you should or should not do. Verse number 7, Uzzah is helping put this thing on a cart and leading it on a cart. Uzzah should never have put the Ark on a cart. It was supposed to be carried on staves. Why? Because you're supposed to bear the burden of the ministry. You're not supposed to just shortchange it, shortcut it, and find some worldly excuse. The cart came from the Philistines. That's how they wanted to move the ark. We're not supposed to bring the philosophy of Pharaoh and worldly wisdom into the church in order to accomplish good things. We need to do it God's way. I think Hudson Taylor said, God's work done God's way will never lack God's supply. Verse number 9, when the oxen stumbled, Uzzah put forth his hand to hold the ark, and God kills him, because Uzzah should not have put his hand to the ark. He flippantly was dealing with the things of God, and that was a mistake. They may have meant well, but if you don't do it God's way, it's rebellion. That's why this shows up in chapter 13. Subtle. We wouldn't say it's like Lucifer, but hey, if the devil can't get you to curse God, he'll just get you to dip the colors on something that is godly and start doing it his way instead of God's way. Like I've said before, if he can't get you in his church, he'll let you sit in God's church with the devil's Bible. I am spinning this pulpit around. How many times have I done this? Ten? (laughs) All right. Uh, Chapter 14. We'll end with 14 tonight. Chapter 14 is about inquiring of God before a battle. It's about David going up against the Philistines. And it's a great lesson to us 
not to charge hell with a squirt gun, as the old timers would say. Don't charge hell with a squirt gun. Don't go taking on the devil with not a lot of good ammunition. And before you engage in spiritual warfare, this is about David engaging the Philistines. You know what David would always do? He'd inquire of God. He'd inquire of God. Hey, before you go to that nursing home, or go to that rescue mission, or go out tracting, or go to church, or go to that family gathering, or want to witness to aunt, whatever her name is, you know what you need to do? You need to bathe that thing in prayer. You need to inquire of God. Lord, what do I do here? What do I do here? Do I go up or not? Look at verse, you know, in Ephesians 6, don't turn there. We've said it before. The Christian armor has no, no, uh, no equipment underneath the knees. Right? From the knees down, there was no armor. Why? Because you fight your battles on your knees. Inquiring of God, there were two things. You had nothing for your back, and you had nothing for the bottoms of your legs. Because you're not supposed to turn and run, and you're supposed to keep praying as a soldier of the cross. 14.8. 14.8. And when the Philistines heard that David was anointed king over all Israel, all the Philistines went up to seek David. And David heard of it and went out against them. And the Philistines came and spread themselves in the valley of Rephaim. Philistines were like mortal enemies. And David, watch it, inquired of God, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? In your spiritual warfare, you've got to pray before you go to war. David did. David was a spiritual man. You think David didn't know how to kill Philistines? He'd killed Goliath. And Goliath was like their champion, right? Right? And I mean, and he, he killed him. You think David could have just said, oh, let's go take care of these boys. He said, no, no, we need to, let's pray first. Let me find out what God thinks first. Verse number 10, look what it says. And the Lord said unto him, go up. Right? Sometimes the Lord's going to tell you, go and fight. Go get them, son. But look what happens in verse 13. And the Philistines yet again spread themselves abroad in the valley. Therefore David inquired again of God. And God said unto him, Go not up after them. Turn away from them and come upon them over against the mulberry trees. And it shall be when thou shalt hear a sound of going in the tops of the mulberry trees. I'm not going to get into that. That then thou shalt go out to battle for God has gone forth before thee to smite the host of the Philistines. You see why you got to pray? Because there might be some nuance to this thing. (laughs) The first time they spread themselves, God says, go get them. Second time he says, oh, slow down, bucko. Wait. I got to go do something for you, and then you could reap the spoils. And the reason why we want to inquire of God is because sometimes God is going to say, go. And sometimes God's going to say, wait, wait. I got to work something out. And when you see me work that out, then you go. But David would have never known that if he didn't inquire of God. And why did Saul die? For not inquiring of God. Inquiring familiar spirits, First Chronicles 10.13 told us. And look what happens, 16. David therefore did as God commanded him, and they smote the host of the Philistines from Gibeon even to Gezer. And the fame of David went out into all lands, and the Lord brought the fear of him upon all nations. When you fear the Lord, the fame of the Lord will be upon you. You'll be famous in heaven. And when you make much of God in your life, the Lord will make much of you. You see what this whole Christian life is about? Spiritual soldier? Communicating with headquarters. I heard a guy preach many years ago, and I think he was right, that if I wanted to destroy a military unit, and I wanted to take out an army, 
I wouldn't just go blow up all their tanks and all their artillery stations. I would take out their communications with headquarters. Because if I can cut off their communication with headquarters, then they're scrambling around like a bunch of ants with no coordination. And David's a mighty soldier. Why? Because he stayed in communication with headquarters. And that's why he was so successful. You know what you need to do? Stay in communication with headquarters so that you can reap the victory and be famous for God in heaven and in the future. Amen? Amen. Let's have a word of prayer. And thank you for being here tonight. Thank you for watching at home. Now to let him, CJ, Stephen, he knows what he's doing. All right? Let's